Well, good morning, everybody. Okay, your second hour, you're supposed to be peppy. Good morning, everybody. All right. Good to see you all. My name is Jim Breckfield. I'm the discipleship minister here, and um, I'm really excited because today we are kicking off our church-wide study called Goliath Must Fall. Now, here's the cool thing about a church-wide study. Basically, everybody has the opportunity to do it, and we're all pulling in the same direction, leaning in, and it gives you an opportunity, whether you're in the same life group or not, to say, hey, what'd you think about that? Or, hey, you know what? I'm struggling this. You got any advice or whatever? And it just helps get us all on the same page. Life groups here are a big deal. Um, we have about 70% of all our regular attendees uh, are in a life group, so the vast majority of people are. And um, 21 of our groups are doing Goliath Must Fall. And so what we're going to do here, as you uh, go through this, each sermon will be followed then by teaching by Louis Giglio, who's just an excellent teacher. And the way to look at this is you'll hear the sermon, and then you'll watch the DVD. So the sermons may be like lessons 1, 3, 5, 7, 9, and 11, and the DVD lessons will be 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12. So if you skip or miss some, then that kind of erodes what you'll get out of it. But here's the key. We've made this extremely easy. First of all, if you're not in a life group, you can go to the table out in the lobby, and we'll call you this afternoon and get you into a life group. If you can't get in one or you're not ready for that yet, you can show up at 1030 in room B. You'll worship at 9 and go to room B, uh, family room B, and you'll watch that week's DVD, so you get the one-two punch right there. Now, if you miss your life group for that week, and maybe you got sick or you got called into work or kid got sick or you stayed home and ate a gallon of ice cream and just didn't feel like going, and now you're like, oh, I missed the DVD, you can go at 9. That is the 9 o'clock is the makeup time, and it is in room B also. So everybody can take this uh, in its fullest extent. The book is very good, and we have it for sale in the Oasis, as well as a study guide if you're a study guide person. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're excited to start this today. We also know that this will be a challenging study, and I would just pray for our church family, uh, whether we have people who have been here a long time or maybe some friends worshiping here with us for the very first time this morning that will come to you with open hearts, with humble, moldable hearts that say, change me and challenge me and grow me. We give this next six weeks to you to be honored. May the glory go to you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are going to dive in to the story of David and Goliath because obviously it plays a big part of this whole study. And what I want to do first, though, is talk about the fact that many people feel the Bible is a collection of a bunch of stories, and it's not. It's one story, and it's the story of Jesus coming to reconcile man to God. And so it starts in the very beginning with God created, and God tells the story about how he will bring the Savior to the world. And at the very end, he tells us how things will conclude with the second coming of Jesus. And how this story fits in here, if you don't mind, is I'm going to give you a picture of how David and Goliath fits in the history of the world in about one minute. So, Adam sinned, and we know that in the beginning, 
and we can follow the genealogy to Noah, where God wiped the face of the earth clean except for Noah and his kids and daughter-in-laws. And then we can chase the, trace the genealogy from Noah to a man named Abraham. And God would raise up Abraham to lead the nation of Israel. And he made a promise to Abraham that through you, through your seed, all nations will be blessed. It's called the Abrahamic promise. And then he repeated that same promise to his son, Isaac, and then to Isaac's son, Jacob. Now, he even got more specific as Jacob blessed Judah, the fourth son. He said, out of your tribe, Judah, the scepter of the kingship will never leave. And so that was an even more specific promise to Judah. And then if you follow down nine generations, you get to a guy by the name of Jesse in Bethlehem. And Jesse had eight sons. And out of those eight sons, the last one would be David. And eventually he would become king of Israel. Um, in the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel, we see where Saul, who was the king of Israel at the time, uh, totally disobeyed God. And it angered God so much that he took his spirit off Saul and he said to Samuel, I'm going to anoint a new king. And so he called all the brothers of Jesse to the house. Each one of them went through, and each one of them God never called. The last one wasn't there. And they said, do you have another son? And Jesse said, yes, he's out tending the sheep. And he said, go get him. We will not sit until he gets there. And so they go get David. They bring him in. And Saul anoints him as the first king as a king of Israel, but he won't become king right away, but he's anointed. God's spirit is now on King David, eventual King David, and he's not king yet. The next time we see David show up is on the battlefield here. He's been in the service of Saul. He's been playing his harp for him, those kind of things, but now we see him in chapter 17, if you want to turn to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. One note on David. The promise to David was that the kingship, the Messiah, Jesus Christ would come out of his lineage and that it would never end. And that being David, I mean Jesus, and we can trace the lineage of Jesus all the way back up to David. Again, one story, multiple stories making up one story. Adam to Noah, Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob to Judah, to Jesse, to David, to Jesus. So now we're at this chapter today. The Philistines, who are nasty, mean people, they're on one hillside. They hate God. And on the other side is God's army, the Israelites and King Saul. They're in the Valley of Elah. And they have this champion, the Philistines have this champion named Goliath. And he's got on this, these bronze boots and, and all this stuff. He's got on this helmet. Now, I want to make a note of something. The other night, we were taking turns in life group reading this story. And I'm reading about Goliath's bronze helmet. And our life group never laughs at anybody when they read because we all mess up and we don't know how to pronounce words. But they all started laughing. And I'm like, why are you laughing? They said, you said Brown's helmet. And I'm like, no, I didn't. Yeah, you did. You said Brown's helmet. 
All I can figure out is subliminally, I had been watching pictures from the parade to celebrate their total defeated season, and I just popped the Browns helmet right onto Goliath. So how appropriate is that? So now one of the things we got to keep in mind is that Goliath was nine feet, roughly nine feet, nine inches tall. So his head would be up where this one is. I paid a lot of money to have this done, by the way. I did not do it at the last minute on her kitchen table last night. Um, and so this would be about the height of Goliath. Now, he would have had on this, this is called scale armor, made up of bronze pieces layered on top to prevent the, the arrows and type of thing from penetrating. And that alone would have been right at about 125 pounds, which represents this right here. This, this is about the same weight that he would have had on his body. And on top of that, he was carrying a spear tip, a spear with a tip on it that weighed over 15 pounds. So he would have been a massive guy. I took my weight and extrapolated it up to where he would be, and he would be easily pushing 360, but he's super strong, so he would have been easily over 400 pounds of massive muscle. And that's who David is going to go up against. Now, David, on the hand, we know he goes out and he kills him with the sling. And the uh, Israelite slings, the shepherd's slings, would have looked like this, just two strings with a stone in them. And it has a little finger hole here, and you swing it like this, and then you let it go. And you hit somebody, not the floor. All right? But that is what David would have been going up against him with, a staff and the sling and some stones. So we pick it up from there. Goliath comes out and he shouts to the rank of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine or are you not the servants of Saul? He knows that they are the God, God's army. He's taunting them. Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let each of us fight, let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now this is where David shows up. His dad, Jesse, has three sons up on the battlefield. And he tells David, I want you to take some cheese and bread and grain and go to the battlefield and get a report on your brothers who are fighting the Philistines. So he goes up and he hears, when he gets up there in the morning, he hears the war cry as the two armies begin to assemble. So he runs up there and what he sees is not what he expected. He left his things with the keeper of the supplies. He ran up there and as he talking with them, Goliath the Philistine champion from Gath stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the men, man, they fled from him in great fear. Now keep in mind what these people have been through, the Israelites. They've been through all kinds of God miracles and deliverance. And here they are cowering over one person. Their faith is very low. So he starts asking questions. What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
And one of the things we have to see in this story is what bothered David most was not his personal um, uh, safety. It was not even that he would get something if he killed him. What bothered David terribly was that God's glory was being trashed. And he was going to restore it. So, of course, Eliab, David's brother, wants him to go back home. Hey, little brother, what are you doing here? Stop running your mouth. Go back and feed your sheep. And David says, now what have I done? Can I even speak? And he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the, and the men answered him as before. And whatever David had said was overheard, and he was taken to Saul. And David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on the account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied to him, he said, David, you are but yet a young man, barely a boy, barely out of boyhood, and this guy is a championed fighter who's way bigger than you, and he's been doing this all his life. And David responded to him, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Once again, David is saying he has taken away the glory of God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. It is very clear as David heads out, that the Lord will win this battle, not him. So Saul says to David, go and the Lord be with you. So they go ahead and they put Saul's armor on him, and he can't even do anything. He's like, no, I'm not used to this. I'm going out with my usual stuff. And he heads out with his staff and his little shepherd's pouch and his five smooth stones. He approaches the Philistine. The Philistine sees him, and he looks David over, and he sees nothing more than a boy glowing with health and handsome, and he despised David. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied, who you have defiled, who, who you have taunted. You see, David is saying two things right there. First of all, I'm going to fight you, but it'll be the Lord's battle. And when you go down, Goliath, God will get the glory. This day I will deliver you into my hands. The Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. I will return the glory to God. He will get it. All those gathered here will know that he is not by sword or spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. The Philistine moved closer to him, and David ran towards him, pulled out a stone, and using his little slingshot, he threw that and hit the, the giant in his forehead. The giant collapsed. And David ran up to him and killed him with his own sword. 
and cut off his head. Now, as you can think, when, when David is standing there holding that head up, he's sending two messages. To the Philistines, he's saying, hey, you, our enemy, God has killed our enemy. Glory to be to God. But when the Israelites, who are all cowering behind him, see that, they say or they think that God has won this. Glory be to God. Two of the things that David wanted. And then it says all of them then started chasing all the Philistines and tracked them down and killed them. David, of course, took the Philistines' um, you know, sword and all that type of thing and put it in his tent. I don't know what he did with the head. Who knows what you do with the head when you have one and you don't you get to keep it or whatever. That's a side issue though, okay? All right, so now, what are our big takeaways today from this? The first is this. If we want to defeat our Goliaths, Jesus must fight our battles. You see, he's already won the battle over sin and death. Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and the fact that he is sitting at the right hand of God is now proof of that. You see, this epic encounter between David, the patriarch, in the lineage of Jesus, is a foreshadowing of what's to come with the battle between Jesus and Satan, where Satan defeats, where Jesus defeats Satan at the cross. We have to let Jesus fight our battles. And of course, we have to allow him. We have to be willing to do that. David would be the first person to tell us, I didn't win this battle. The Lord won it for us. Jesus came and he freed us from Satan. And we have to have that mindset. Satan Satan still attacks, but we can resist our enemy now. In John 8, 34 through 36, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell everyone who's tell you, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son, capital S, Jesus, sets you free, little s, son, or little d, daughter, then you're basically a child of God and you are freed from sin. The power of it. James 4, 7, James writes, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James doesn't say, do your best. He doesn't say, you'll probably get past it. He says that Satan will flee from us if we submit to God. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. it's not on your outline for a good reason. I forgot to put it on there. Note that, okay, first of all, a lot of people will say, The Bible says that the Lord will not put on me anything more than I can handle. The Scripture tells us that the Lord will not put any more, He won't allow more temptation than what we can handle. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. The New Testament has a very clear, strong theme through it, that if we make Jesus the Lord of our life, if we accept him as our personal Lord and Savior, if we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if he washes away our sins, then we have the power 
over sin. It does not have the power over us. The second takeaway is that while Jesus has defeated sin, sin can still be deadly if we let it hang around. You see, Jesus has bound Satan, but he can still do some damage if we allow it. A good analogy is a mean junkyard dog. He's on a 30-foot chain. He's frothing at the mouth. He'll, he'll attack anything that comes in his 30-foot chain. And see, if we go in that 30-foot chain area, we can be maimed or killed. If we stay out of that area, we are safe. It's the same way with sin. If we get too close to it, we can get sucked in, and we have to get back out of it. But if we keep it at an arm's distance, or even more, then we can be safe. The enemy is dead, but he can still get a hold of us. The title of this week's sermon and this upcoming week's DVD lesson is Dead, But Still Deadly. Christ has defeated Satan. He has given us power over sin. But even though Satan and sin have been conquered, it can still be deadly if we hang around it. We have to be aware of sin and not ignore it or be overwhelmed by it. We have to let Jesus fight our battle. And the third one is this. We must allow the giants in our life to be slain to bring glory to God. You see, David wasn't primarily motivated to kill Goliath for his safety or what he would get. He was all about bringing glory and fame to his heavenly father. David said to the Philistine, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. And see, this has to be our motivation too as we take on our Goliaths. You see, too often we want to get rid of our Goliaths because it makes us feel bad. We feel guilty when we wake up in the morning or when we go to bed at night. Or maybe we wake up physically ill with our head throbbing because of a Goliath in our life. We may hate what our Goliath does to our loved ones, and we want to get over it for that reason. We hate our Goliath and want to get rid of it because it's hard on our pocketbook. But the number one reason why we should want to get rid of the Goliaths in our life is because we want to bring glory to God. People should be able to look at us as Christians and see what Jesus is doing in our life as he's fighting our battles and we are changing. Louis asks a very pointed question in the upcoming week DVD. Listen to this. He says, is God getting glory in your life right now? Think about that. Is God getting glory in your life right now? Or is there a giant that's got its foot on our neck, and because of it, the people around us don't see God in our lives? And if they don't, newsflash. They don't care what we say. They're just watching how we live. You see, we can come to church and we can say, oh, I go to this church or do that or I'm reading my Bible. But if people don't see Jesus working in our lives, slaying our giants, 
they're just going to walk away. Until we get this point that until we want God to get the glory, we will never be free of the giants that demoralize us, terrorize us, steal our joy, cause us to settle for less, and draw people away from Jesus. And this biblical principle needs to rise to the top and give us fuel to get rid of our Goliaths. So real quick, what are the three takeaways again? If we want to defeat our Goliaths, Jesus must fight our battles. You see, in the story of David and Goliath in our life, David is Jesus. Jesus is David. We're not. We're actually the Israelites standing behind in fear. So we have our Goliath. Jesus is our David. And once he wins this battle, we're we're right behind him, running full speed. The second takeaway, while Jesus has defeated the enemy, sin can still be deadly if we let it hang around. And the third takeaway is we must allow our giants to be slain to bring glory to God. And over the next six weeks, we'll unpack this in the sermons and in the life groups so that we can slay the giants in our life. So what's your giant? Louis gave his book out to people to proof it and read and give back feedback, and some of them said, I I didn't think I even had any giants. But they found out that basically we all have giants. Our giants may be started out really small, just like Goliath was a baby at one time. He was probably a doggone big baby, but he didn't always be, he wasn't always that size. And our Goliaths in our life over our whole span have just continued to keep growing and growing and growing. Our giants may have started out being our friends in high school or college, and now they're not our friends anymore, or maybe they are, but we just don't care or we don't, we're not concerned about getting rid of them. But they need to go away. And so... We will study five main Goliaths, but under each one there are some subheadings. I'm just going to throw these out real quick. First Goliath that must fall is fear. An example might be that you have a controlling spirit. You don't like things to be out from under your control. You have to control as much as possible or you're scared. You need to have the Goliath of fear fall. Then there's the fear of rejection or rejection, that Goliath. And for many, rejection looms as a giant, and it haunts us with cousins, insecurity, infuriety, perfectionism, or compulsive drive. If we suffer from rejection, we are constantly seeking approval from family members or kids, other students at school, or people on our team, or the people at work. If we believe we're only as good as our last successes, we are in the clutches of the giant of rejection. The next one is probably the scariest, and that is the Goliath of comfort. It's the scariest because it's the least obvious. And you see, in this particular case, we opt for safety and security and comfort. When oftentimes comfort and obedience to God butt heads. We miss great opportunities to serve or to stand in gaps or do whatever because we want comfort more than we want obedience. I'm going to share with you something out of my heart 
because it's a big thing on my heart right now. And I know the rest of the staff shares it, but I'm speaking for myself right now. In the area of comfort is passivity. And one of the things that right now is just killing the church is passivity in Christian parenting. Research is showing that seven to nine out of ten kids are walking away from their faith for good. Attending church and just assuming because you did, your kids will no longer works if it ever did. And mommies and daddies need to be about discipling their kids. It is so much harder to emphasize discipling your kids, making sure that they're at youth group and Round Lake and here for two hours on Sunday morning. That's going against the cultural grain, and your kids may butt heads with you. And what we constantly see is parents taking a passive route and going the easy way, and they will jump tall buildings and leap giant streams to make sure that their kids are at all these different events. They'll travel to different states. They'll spend tons of money. And then when we ask them, hey, are you going to go to CIY? Or are you going to go to Round Lake? We get the response that we just don't have the money. Or, man, I'll tell you what, our summer is so packed. And see, it's more comfortable to take that route than it is to say, hey, we are going to be about teaching our kids about Jesus and making sure they have answers to their faith so that they can make it in this world that is attacking them. And so in the area of comfort, passive parenting really needs to fall. And I say that out of love, but it's just so critical for the future of the church and for your children's destination once they pass this life. There's the anger Goliath. This is where you might have a vocal, hot-tempered anger, and you may say, well, that one I don't need to worry about, but maybe you have a simmering anger. You walk around with a bitter, unforgiving heart. Then your anger, Goliath, must fall. And then there's the addiction, Goliath. We jump to thinking about drugs and pornography and alcohol, but there's way more. There's credit card debt just flipping it out because you're trying to feed something in your heart that you need to give you happiness. Or there's the shopping one where you just are buying constantly again to feed something that you're missing. Sports can be an addiction. We can wake up in the morning and read ESPN first, and we can go watch sports, and we can participate in sports, and we can have our kids in sports, and then at the end of the week we can go Man, I just haven't had much time to pray or read. You see, any time something knocks Jesus out of the way as the number one priority, it can be an addiction. And that could be for anything, not just sports. It could be for academics or music or the arts or whatever. We need an anger slayer, a fear slayer, a rejection slayer, a comfort slayer, an addiction slayer, and that slayer is Jesus. 
this all boils down to us asking Jesus, Jesus, I have this giant or these giants in my life. Will you defeat them for me? Will you give me victory through you? And Lord, first and foremost, when we're done, I want you to get the glory. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm become very aware this week of my giants. Um, I hope that I'm not the only one and that this, as a church body, that we will, again, come humbly before you, that we will be moldable and open. And instead of shutting our hearts and saying, you're not going there, Lord, that we will be like, man, as painful as this is, Lord, I want you to come in and I want you to help me get rid. In fact, I want you to just defeat my giant. So as a church family, Lord, just really work on us hard all through the week, every Sunday morning during our life groups, 24-7 for the next six weeks. Help us to lift our giants up to you. Make them very aware to us. And when we're fearful that this won't work, that we will lean in on you and you will take care of those giants for us. May you get the glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The first step to Jesus slaying your giants is to give him your life to confess him with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you meet him in baptism and your sins are washed away and you get the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that's step number one that's just the the launch point for a whole life but you have engaged the giant slayer at that point and if you want to make that decision today you can come forward right now if you just want to talk with me about it you can come forward as the praise team sings